0: I'm David Kasher, a rabbi at IKAR in Los Angeles, and together we're gonna study the weekly Torah portion of the Parsha and figure out why the Torah really is the best book ever. So, this is how it ends. After all of this, we had to close with curses? I mean, Leviticus has not been the easiest of books, you know? But we've followed along, dutifully, chapter after chapter, we've had to push our way through the most maddeningly minute and often quite unpleasant details as we toured through this book of priestly rituals. There were the endless sacrificial rites with their gory details of slaughter, blood and guts everywhere cast upon the altar. and turned into smoke and ashes. Then there were the purity laws, guarding mysterious states of cleanliness, which included graphic depictions of skin disease, genital discharge, animal carcasses, and swarms of insects. There were long lists of laws devoted to regulating sexuality, containing endless, uncomfortable descriptions of various forms of forbidden union. And just a couple of weeks ago, we catalogued all the physical deformities that prevent a person from serving as a priest. Broken bones, crossed eyes, crushed testicles. Uh, No, you have not exactly been a fun read, Leviticus. And then here we are in the very last Parsha, and it looked like we were going to have a bit of respite when we opened with, of all things, some blessings. A few mentions of good crops, a reference to peace in the land. The Torah even says that God will walk amongst us. Now that sounds nice. Maybe we're finally catching a break here. And then curses. And not just a few curses, either. Curses upon curses. Curses of the very worst kind. All of our worst nightmares, death, destruction, disease. And all of them delivered by an angry God who seems wholly without compassion, especially in lines like this, you shall eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. Uh, this, it's, it's too much, it's just too much. I can't take it anymore. Maybe, I think this every year, maybe we should just stop reading Leviticus. But suddenly, toward the very end, there's a kind of reversal. God seems to rush to take all the condemnation back. Just when things are at their worst, the land is forsaken, the people are in exile, and yet, yet even then, vehem. when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or spurn them so as to destroy them or annul my covenant with them. For I, the Eternal, am their God. I will remember them, the covenant with the ancients, Brit Rishonim, whom I freed from the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. This oh-so-brief expression of care is desperately seized on by the commentators as evidence that God never fully abandons us and will always come back to redeem us in the end. So the Ora Chaim, Rabbi Chaim Ibn Attar, an 18th century Moroccan commentator writes, God will bring around God's mercy, Yisovev and suppress the harsh judgments when God sees this noble nation, the children of royalty, so humiliated in the land of their enemies. And so God will remember the last generation as God remembered that first generation who entered into a covenant with God with great love, Ba'avah Rabbah. Well, that's nice. God finally remembered us. After all of our suffering and humiliation, in the end, God showed us a bit of mercy. But isn't it a bit too little, too late? I mean, is this really supposed to be comforting? Here we are in the midst of total devastation caused by God, and now that same God comes around and says, hey, I'm back, don't worry, I didn't forget you. Are we now to simply lap up this morsel of pity, like a whimpering dog, desperate for any affection we can get? The relational dynamic here is uninspiring, to say the least. We have sinned against God, God has battered us into submission, and now we're grateful to simply have a moment of reprieve. The Zohar, however, the great mystical text of Judaism, offers a very different description of God's motivations. This, says the Zohar, is like a man who loves a woman who lives in a market of leather workers, where the smell is unbearable. If she were not there, he would never have entered there. But because she is there, it seems to him like a market of spice merchants, where there are all the best scents in the world. Here too, yet even then when they are in the land of their enemies, which is like the leather factory, I will not reject or spurn them. Why? Because the bride who I love, who is the beloved of my soul, dwells with them. So it seems to me like the finest fragrance in the world, because of the bride who dwells among them. And Rabbi Yossi said, Had I only come to hear this, it would have been enough. In this provocative imagery, the Zohar simply ignores the fact that God is the one who has delivered all of the curses, and instead recasts all the horrors of exile as the obstacles that stand between God and God's beloved bride. And God is willing to withstand anything to get back to us. In fact, it's not even a challenge for God, because the foulest odors in the world are, in the intoxication of God's passion, transformed into the sweetest perfume." Well, this is all very romantic, but isn't it just a willful misread of the whole narrative? I mean, Doesn't it fail to account for all the trauma of the curses and the sins that provoked them? Instead of the savage drama between a ferocious master and his careless servant, this whole section of Leviticus has just been breezily turned into a love story. Now, make no mistake, this does plainly fail to address the moral and theological dilemmas presented by the harrowing curses of our Parsha, but it does pick up on another theme that has been running throughout the book of Leviticus, and that is love. Threaded through this corpus of archaic priestly protocols is a chronicle of tender intimacy between God and the people of Israel, and it's been there from the very start. When God summons Moses with the opening words of Leviticus, "Vaikra," and God called, Rashi says there that this is the language of love, Lashon Chiba, the language that the angels use when they call to one another. And this call to love can be traced throughout Leviticus. The sacrifices, which seem at once so ritualized and so savage, are referred to in the Hebrew as korbanot, the root of which is karev, to come close. And so it's often been suggested that these offerings are meant above all to bring people close to God. And the purity laws, similarly, are carefully attended to as a way of maintaining access to holy places like the temple, places where one can enter into relationship with the divine. Even the legal codes of Leviticus are framed with the language of holiness, Kedusha. Be holy, for I, the Eternal your God, am holy. This is the same language that we use in a Jewish wedding context, where we might well translate it into, be mine, for I am yours. And so, yes, in that sense, it's no surprise that these laws move quickly into the realm of sex. Sex, intimacy, relationships, closeness... Love is the hidden subject of Leviticus. So it is that in the reading of the Zoar, love is the thing that explains God's return to us and somehow manages to negate both our sins and God's vicious retribution. It doesn't really make sense, but then love makes no sense. Passion is a kind of insanity, and in its grip we sacrifice everything. We risk being consumed by fire. We try desperately to come close, and sometimes, when this attempt fails, we spew curses at one another. But we always reconcile in the end. This anyway is the Zoar's account of, of God's enduring love, God's ability to breathe in the foulest parts of us as if they were the finest fragrances in the world. But what, then, is the testament of our love for God? Well, I want to suggest that perhaps it is our continued reading of Leviticus. This difficult book with its tedious instructions, this collection of laws that sometimes shock and offend us and curses that terrify us, this is the most challenging book of the Torah, the one that it would be so easy for us to just leave out but we keep coming back to it every year to struggle with it and to attempt to somehow find meaning in it to find love for it to find a sweet scent in that which at first may seem so odious one of the greatest bands of the 90s the magnetic fields on their epic concept album 69 love songs has a song called the book of love in it they imagine an actual ancient book which contains everything on the subject of love. And the tongue in cheek lyrics might, might very well be an unsympathetic description of Leviticus. The book of love is long and boring and written very long ago. It's full of flowers and heart shaped boxes and things we're all too young to know. And then comes the chorus, but I, I love it when you read to me and you, you can read me anything. Oh God, really? Leviticus? Sacrifices, diseases, rules, curses again? All right, my love. You can read me anything. <music> Best Book Ever was produced by Ben Cooley and edited by Vera Blossom, and our theme song is Pete by Hillel Tigay. You can listen to more of his beautiful music on iTunes and Spotify. And while you're there, why not subscribe to Best Book Ever if you haven't already? If you're interested in supporting this podcast and our work, you can visit us at ikar.org and donate or Venmo us at ecarla. That's I-K-A-R-L-A. Thanks a lot, and see you next week.